Section 1 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh Pretended Death Part 1 Counterfeited Death Forged Certification False Personation and Fictitious Substitution Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life insurance companies may be grouped under certain general heads. Counterfeited death, pretense of death under the forms of forged certification, false personation, and fictitious substitution. Speculative and graveyard insurance, mysterious disappearances with their inferences and presumptions poisoning and other forms of homicide, deliberately planned suicide, problematical and disputable appearances, perplexing identification, and self-mutilation in accident insurance. This classification comprehends only those actively aggressive forms of fraud which contemplate speedy realization of the atrocious end in view, and which therefore are broadly counter-distinguished from less tangible sorts of imposture, such, for instance, as material concealment or misrepresentation in the answers recorded in the application. It is in the nature of these latter deceptions that for possible results they can only look remotely to the chances of the future and the natural course of events, while their flagrancy is generally mitigated by individual unselfishness. But, though in the armamentaria of fraud there are no weapons which more urgently call for the watchful scrutiny of life insurance executive officers, the scope of this volume limits us to the consideration of the assaults of deeper desperation and more remorseless cupidity. Counterfeiting death by means of the hypnotic or cataleptic state, whether induced by mesmeric agency or by recourse to anesthetics or somnificence, which suspend sensation in motion, is so extremely rare that it need not be seriously considered as a factor in the machinations of the assailants of insurance companies. Curiously enough, the most striking illustration of the trance condition, and indeed, so far as we are aware, the only case of successfully simulated death is the first recorded fraud in the history of life insurance. According to Mr. John Francis, who tells the story in his very entertaining Annals, Anecdotes, 
and Legends of Life Assurance, it occurred in the year 1730. Mr. Francis says, Two persons resided in the then obscure suburbs of St. Giles's, one of whom was a woman of twenty, the other a man whose age would have allowed him to be the woman's father, and who was generally understood to bear that relation. Their position hovered on the debatable ground between poverty and competence, or might even be characterized by the modern term of shabby genteel. They interfered with no one, and they encouraged no one to interfere with them. No specific personal description is recorded of them beyond the fact that the man was tall and middle-aged, bearing a semi-military aspect, and that the woman, though young and attractive in person, was apparently haughty and frigid in her manner. On a sudden, at night-time, the latter was taken very ill. The man sought the wife of his nearest neighbor for assistance, informing her that his daughter had been seized with sudden and great pain at the heart. They returned together and found her in the utmost apparent agony, shrinking from the approach of all and dreading the slightest touch. The leech was sent for, but before he could arrive, she seemed insensible, and he only entered the room in time to see her die. The father appeared in deep distress. The doctor felt her pulse placed his hand on her heart, shook his head as he intimated all was over and went his way. The searchers came, for those birds of ill omen were then the ordinary haunters of the deathbed, and the coffin with its contents was committed to the ground. Almost immediately after this, the bereaved father claimed from the underwriters some money which was insured on his daughter's life, left the locality, and the story was forgotten. Not very long after, the neighborhood of Queen Square, then a fashionable place, shook its head at the somewhat equivocal connection which existed between one of the inmates of a house in that locality and a lady who resided with him. The gentleman wore mustaches and, though not young, affected what was then known as the macaroni style. The lady accompanied him everywhere. The captain, for such was the almost indefinite title he assumed, was a visitor at Ranley, was an habitué of the coffee houses, and being an apparently wealthy person, riding good horses and keeping an attractive mistress, he attained a certain position among the mauvais sujets of the day. Like many others of that period, he was, or seemed to be, a dabbler in the funds, was frequently seen at Lloyd's and in the alley, lounged occasionally at Garraway's, but appeared more particularly to affect the company of those who dealt in life assurances.
His house soon became a resort for the young and thoughtless, being one of those pleasant places where the past and the future were alike lost in the present, where cards were introduced with the wine, and where, if the young bloods of the day lost their money, they were repaid by a glance of more than ordinary warmth from the goddess of the place, and to which, if they won, they returned with renewed zest. One thing was noticed, they never won from the master of the house, and there is no doubt a large portion of the current expenses was met by the money gambled away, but whether it were fairly or unfairly gained is scarcely a doubtful question. A stop was soon put to these amusements. The place was too remote from the former locality. The appearance of both characters was too much changed to be identified, or in these two might have been traced the strangers of that obscure suburb where, as daughter, the woman was supposed to die, and his father, the man, had wept and raved over her remains, and a similar scene was once more to be acted. The lady was taken as suddenly ill as before. The same spasms at the heart seemed to convulse her frame, and again the man hung over her in apparent agony. Physicians were sent for in haste. One only arrived in time to see her once more imitate the appearance of death, while the others, satisfied that life had fled, took their fees, shook solemnly their powdered wigs, and departed. This mystery, for it is evident that there was some collusion or conspiracy, is partially solved when it is said that many thousands were claimed and received by the gallant captain from various underwriters, merchants, and companies with whom he had assured the life of the lady. But the hero of this tradition was a consummate actor, and though his career is unknown for a long period after this, yet it is highly probable that he carried out his nefarious projects in schemes which are difficult to trace. There is little doubt, however, that the soi-disant captain of Queen Square was one and the same person who, as a merchant a few years later, appeared on the commercial walks of Liverpool, where, deep in the mysteries of corn and cotton, a constant attender at church, a subscriber to local charities, and a giver of good dinners, he soon became much respected by those who dealt with him in business or visited him in social life. The hospitalities of his house were gracefully dispensed by a lady who passed as his niece, and for a time nothing seemed to disturb the tenor of his way. At length, 
it became whispered in the world of commerce that his speculations were not so successful as usual, and a long series of misfortunes, as asserted by him, gave a sanction to the whisper. It soon became advisable for him to borrow money and this he could only do on the security of property belonging to his niece to do so it was necessary to insure their lives for about two thousand pounds this was easy enough as liverpool no less than london was ready to assure anything which promised profit and as the affair was regular no one hesitated a certain amount of secrecy was requisite for the sake of his credit and availing himself of this he assured on the life of his niece two thousand pounds with at any rate ten different merchants and underwriters in london and elsewhere the game was once more in his own hands and the same play was once more acted the lady was taken ill the doctor was called in and found her suffering from convulsions he administered a specific and retired in the night he was again hastily summoned but arrived too late the patient was declared to be beyond his skill and the next morning it became known to all liverpool that she had died suddenly a decorous grief was evinced by the chief mourner there was no haste made in forwarding the funeral the lady lay almost in state so numerous were the friends who called to see the last of her they had visited the searchers did their hideous office gently for they were profitably bribed the physician certified that she had died of a complaint he could scarcely name and the grave received the coffin the merchant retained his position in liverpool and bore himself with decent dignity made no immediate application for the money scarcely even alluded to the assurances which were due and when they were named exhibited an appearance of almost apathetic indifference he had however selected his victims with skill they were safe men and from them he duly received the money which was assured on the life of his niece from this period he seemed to decline in health expressed a loathing for the place where he had once been so happy change of air was prescribed and he left the men whom he had deceived chuckling at the success of his infamous scheme it need not be repeated that the poverty-stricken gentlemen of the suburbs the gambling captain of queen square 
and the merchant of Liverpool were identical. That so successful a series of frauds was practiced appears wonderful at the present day, but that the woman either possessed that power of simulating death of which we read occasional cases in the remarkable records of various times, or that the physicians were deceived or bribed is certain. There is no other way of accounting for the success of a scheme which dipped so largely into the pockets of the underwriters. A Chicago Sham in pursuance of a swindle concocted in Chicago by Richard Rainforth, Dr. C.B. Kendall, and T.W. Fuller, it was prearranged that the principal actor should feign death following typhoid fever and that previous to burial, another body should be smuggled into the coffin. The particulars of this case are as follows. In the month of February 1867, a will purporting to have been made and signed by Richard Rainforth, deceased, was filed in the Cook County Court, Chicago, for probate. The will was duly executed and witnessed and contained three separate bequests, one for $1,000 to Dr. Charles B. Kendall Fullerton Block, one of $1,000 to Timothy W. Fuller, 133 South Clark Street, and the rest of Rainforth's property to Bertie, the daughter of T.W. Fuller. The will provided for its own execution and named Kendall and Fuller, the legatees, as executors. The will was on file till March 21st, no measures having been taken to prove it until that date, when a rule of court was obtained to compel the executors to do so. When the demise of Rainforth was made public, Miles Rainforth, his brother, went to Chicago to see how matters stood in his favor in the will. After having obtained an interview with M. F. Heenan, the lawyer who had been employed to draw up the will, he was led to believe the will was a forgery or that deceased had been dealt with foully. Impressed with this doubt, he arranged with the legal firm to investigate the subject. Efforts were then made to have the will proved, but failed until a rule of court was had compelling the executors to show cause why they did not prove the will. On the 21st of March, Fuller and Kendall appeared in court to answer the summons issued and in the absence of Mr. Heenan, renounced the executorship. Miles Rainforth then filed a petition asking for an examination into the merits of the will. The petition was granted, and the executors placed in the witness box to answer relative to their stewardship of the property of the deceased 
and the manner of his death. Dr. Kendall was first examined and refused to answer when he was committed for contempt. Fuller was then placed on the stand and to the question, is Richard Rainforth dead? replied, no, he is not dead. He still lives. He then testified that Rainforth, Kendall, and himself had matured a plan to defraud the Aetna, St. Louis Mutual, and Mutual Benefit Life Insurance Companies in which he had effected policies for $15,000. The plan consisted in Rainforth assuming death while Kendall was deputed to procure a body for the internment, and after the skilled substitution of the body, Rainforth was to seek some place of concealment. In pursuance of this arrangement, a few days before Rainforth's alleged death, he pretended to feel unwell, and Dr. Kendall was called in and pronounced the patient suffering from typhoid fever. Two days afterwards, by direction of the patient, his will was drawn up and another physician called on to visit the sick man. He decided that he only had about 36 hours to live. The same day, a barber was procured who shaved off Rainforth's mustache and whiskers. An hour afterwards, his will was signed in the presence of Heenan and two other witnesses. While Fuller and Kendall were in the room, the latter said, Poor Dick is dead. On the following day, the pretended corpse was apparently and presumably coffined and buried in Graceland Cemetery, Chicago. Fuller, moreover, stated that he was not aware of the fraud practiced upon him by this pretense of death until some time after its occurrence. He afterward learned that the letters had been received at Chicago from Rainforth and Fuller's daughter Bertie, dated as late as March 18th. Fuller was then held for a further hearing in $12,000 bail and Dr. Kendall was arraigned for fraud and held in jail to answer. Search was made for Rainforth after the plot had been discovered, but no clue to his whereabouts was obtained until sometime in April when it was ascertained that he was in New York. On the receipt of a telegram to that effect by Superintendent Kennedy, from the detective agency of William Tuttle and Company, Chicago, detectives Vaughn and Niven were detailed to find Rainforth. They worked assiduously, and after a deal of difficulty, they learned that he was at the DuPont House, corner of Hudson and Late Streets. They proceeded to the place at two o'clock at night, and there he was discovered in bed. He was taken to police headquarters and delivered to the custody of Detective Kennedy of Chicago, who had been sent to New York to convey the accused to that city. 
Rainforth had been a quartermaster in the army, Dr. Kendall an army surgeon, and Mr. Fuller a detective in the service of the government during the war. Fuller, after his exposure of the Rainforth conspiracy, furnished the Chicago Tribune with an autobiographical sketch of his life and adventures, in the course of which he made a revelation, which, however startling or sensational, savored so much more of the fanciful than of the probable, that it did not produce a very profound impression. He said, The origin of this insurance business is not here. There are parties connected with it who stand high in society and who have great influence. It would not benefit me to say who these parties are, nor would it now benefit the insurance companies, and the public will not be injured by having the names kept a secret for the present. It is enough to say it is an organized company with its headquarters in New York. It has its ramifications throughout the principal states, and the persons engaged are in such positions that if attempted the frauds will be seldom discovered because the doctor and the man who is reported to die have no knowledge outside of the patient or case in which they are engaged. Whatever the object of this singular statement, it was deemed prudent in view of possibilities to give it some consideration for if upon investigation there should be found a shadow of truth in so remarkable a declaration the life companies were bound to assume a defensive attitude but whether true or not the experience of the english companies and the numerous cases of convicted crime in this country sufficiently prove to our life corporations that they have an ugly foe to encounter and that it is necessary to be unceasingly vigilant. End of section 1